Let us pray. Our most eternal and everlasting Father, we are thankful this morning for your love and your mercy. We are thankful for the goodness that you continue to show each and everyone that's assembled here as a goodness that you have displayed in many, many ways. We are grateful that we have this privilege to assemble together, to obey your instruction that we should uh, never neglect the assembling of believers for, to be encouraged, especially as we see the evil days draw near. We know we are in tumultuous times, but we also understand that underneath are the everlasting arms that sustain us. For this we are grateful. So as we have gathered this morning, we are aware that the human mind is incapable of understanding anything that is spiritual apart from the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So it is a request that God the Holy Spirit, the perfect communicator, will enable us to hear precisely what, we have, what you have for us in your word. This is a request in Christ's name. Amen. We are still dealing with First Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. where we have been dealing with some characteristics of love. Begin reading in verse 4 of the 1984 edition of the NIV. It reads, Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Now we have been concerned with some characteristics of love Apostle Paul gave here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verses 4 through 7. We indicated that it is not easy to define love, but for our application purposes, we provided a working definition of love, which is a thought action phenomenon that involves a subject and an object, whereby the object is benefited. Now, this working definition notwithstanding, the fact remains that love as a concept is something abstract in that you could not hold, uh, hold it, but it is something that can be recognized or characterized in relation to how a subject uh, acts towards the object of love. Now, subsequently, the Holy Spirit through Apostle Paul provides us features that are necessary in identifying presence or absence of love as it relates to the object of love. Now, as we indicated in the introduction of this section, the apostle began with positive characterizations of love. Then he moved to negative characterization in terms of what love uh, never does 
And then he ended with positive characterization in terms of responses associated with love. Now the characterization of love that we have in our passage is intended to help us prove the truthfulness of our claim to love someone. Hence, we stated last week that the message is simply that you should test your love, your claim of love by comparing your love to the positive and the negative characteristics of love that the Holy Spirit provided here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, we considered the two positive characteristics given in verse 4. We followed this with the negatives that are associated with love. In effect, we have considered four actions that do not characterize love. So this morning, we move now with the fifth, fifth description in a negative form. Now the fifth negative description of love is concerned with not being self-centered. Is concerned with not being self-centered in the sense of being only concerned of self without due consideration of others. As we read in the next sentence of First Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5 where it says, It is not self-seeking. That's love. It's not self-seeking. Now our English versions have translated the Greek in different ways. For example, the Revised English Bible renders it this way. Love is never selfish. Which is, that's reflected in some, of course, other English versions such, such as today's English version. The New English Translation reads, it is not self-serving. The New Living Translation puts it this way. It does not demand its own way. It does not demand its own way. Now even the English versions that are more often literal in their translation give quite different readings. The New American Standard Bible reads, it does not seek its own. While the English Standard Version reads, it does not insist on its own way. So the various translations are the ways the translators render the literal Greek that reads something like this. This is the way it is in the Greek. Not seek the things of itself. That's how the Greek says, not seek the things of itself. Now the literal reading that we have given, and the various ways it has been uh, translated in our English versions, are because of the Greek words used. Now the word seeking of the NIV, or literally seek, is translated from a, a Greek verb that may mean to seek, or to look for. In order to find, to seek or to look for in order to find. Now the word may mean to request, to demand, or to ask for. 
as it is used by Apostle Paul to justify his threat of punishing the offenders in Corinth during his visit to them, as recorded in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3. Second Corinthians chapter thirteen verse three. It is and since you are demanding see that's a, a Greek word here is translated demand. Since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me, he is not weak in dealing with you. But is powerful among you. Now the word may mean to devote serious effort to realize one's own desire or objective. Hence, the word there means like something like to strive for, or to aim, or even to obtain. As the word is used in describing uh, Timothy's devotion. To the affairs of the Philippians, unlike many others who were not devoted, as we read in Philippians chapter 2, verse 21. Philippians chapter 2, verse 21, and hold on to it. Well, we'll come back to it later on this before it's all over. Philippians 2 verse 21 reads, For everyone looks out for, yeah, that's how they translate, looks out for, looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. In our passage of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5, the Greek word is used with the meaning to seek. To seek in the sense of to try seriously to reach something one desires. To try seriously to reach uh, something someone desires. Now the thing that is to be sought is given literally in the Greek the things of itself. The things of itself. Now the literal phrase the things is really one word in the Greek. It is a definite article in the Greek that is used in various ways depending on the context. When it is used in the form that it appears in the passage that we are considering, it means the things, the things. Now the word itself, of course, is translated from uh, a reflexive pronoun in the Greek that may mean himself, herself, or itself. Does the Greek phrase literally uh, translate the thing of itself. The question though is to understand how to interpret the Greek inner passage. Now the translators of the NIV translated similar phrase in the sense of one's interest. One's interest. Now this this is the way it's Translated in the passage I just read you, uh, Philippians 2.21, because he says everyone looks for his own interests. 
interests, not those of Christ. Now that phrase, his own interests, is more literally from the Greek, the things of themselves. The things of themselves. Now the problem, as we have stated, is how to interpret them, the Greek phrase used in our verse. The standard Greek-English lexicon of Bauer, Duncan, Art, and Gingrich suggests that it should be translated his own advantage. Instead, I mean, that whole thing, the, the things of themselves, it should be translated his own advantage. Now, so this being the case, the apostle is concerned with advantage or something that if that is of great interest to love as if it is a person. See, love is being personified, so to say. Now, so the idea is that of personal concern of something that is used to describe love. Now, that aside, the apostle uh, wants us to understand that love is concerned with interest and welfare of others. Interest and welfare of others. Now this interpretation is based on the context of this epistle. See the apostle had already encouraged believers to be concerned about the affairs of others as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 24. First Corinthians chapter ten verse twenty four. And hold on to that chapter ten. I'll pick another verse from that. First Corinthians chapter ten verse twenty four reads Nobody should seek his own good by the good of others. We studied that. We explained it doesn't mean you don't look for your own good, it's just that you have to also think about others. Furthermore, The apostle has conveyed that he followed the example he exhorts when he tells us how he functions in the same 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Look at verse 33. Verse 33 reads, Even as I try to please everybody in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. So, one gets the idea then, that it is the interest or advantage of love that the apostle was thinking of when he wrote that, the little phrase that we're looking at, it is the things of itself, or according to the NIV, self-seeking. It's for this reason then that we indicated that love is not self-centered in the sense of the person who has love being consumed with the individual's interest at the exclusion of that of the others. Now it is not that a person who loves should not be concerned about the individual's interest. That is, The Holy Spirit is not saying that a person with love should not be concerned with the individual's interest. But that that such a person 
should not be self-centered so that the individual is not concerned with the affairs of others. In other words, if you are self-centered, you don't think about others. Now you know that's just part of what we are dealing with these days. Uh, most of us are just self-centered. All we think is about ourselves. Now the point we are making though is, is similar to what the apostle wrote to the Philippians and, and so to all believers concerning how they should be concerned about the affairs of others as we read in Philippians chapter 2 verse 4. Philippians chapter 2 verse 4. Philippians chapter 2 verse 4 reads, Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So that's what we're dealing with self-centeredness. If you have it, cannot have love. They cannot coexist. Anyway, we contend then that the fifth negative description of love is concerned with not being self-centered in the sense of being only concerned of self without due consideration of others. Love that is free from being self-centered is concerned with pleasing others and not just self. Since the Lord Jesus, who is the epitome of love, did not please himself, but was concerned for us to the point he died for our sins as recorded in Romans chapter 15, verses 2 and 3. Romans 15, verses 2 and 3. Romans chapter 15 verses 2 and 3. It is, each of us should please his neighbor for his good, for his good, to build him up. For even Christ Jesus did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. So, we see that when we think of what love cannot be, it should be clear that it cannot involve being self-centered or it cannot involve selfishness. That, when that is in, in you, you know you don't have love. Now a person who is self-centered or selfish manifests the characteristics of unbelievers in the time we live because that is what the Holy Spirit said about unbelieving world of our time that will be lovers of themselves according to 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 and 2.
Second Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 and 2. This is why I said if a, a believer who claims to be in lo- uh, who has love and yet is self-centered is actually showing some characteristic of unbelieving world. So we read here, which is something that you know you can see all this to display being displayed today. Says we were in the last year, of course. He said, but mark this: there will be terrible times in the last days. Now look at what we we'll see. People will be lovers of themselves. Think about that. How many people can you think that they're really not lovers of themselves? Lovers of money. Think about that too. How money drives almost everything many people, most people do on this planet. Boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Now that, that is clear today that you know, many, most of our children these days, they are very disrespectful to their parents. Proving the fact of what we have here. Ungrateful, unholy. So, no one that is characterized by selflessness or self-centeredness is filled of the Holy Spirit. Since love is an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, it is not difficult to see that a person who is controlled by self-centeredness could not possibly be filled of the Spirit, and so impossible to exhibit love. So anyway, we insist then that the fifth negative characteristic or negative description of love is concerned with not being self-centered in the sense of being only concerned of self without the consideration of others. So, any time that you are manifesting self-centeredness or selfishness, you can check it off. I'm not capable of loving anyone at that point. The next minute, yes, you can. But the moment that you are self-centered, at that instant, you are incapable of loving anyone. No matter what you claim. That's just fact. That's from what we see here. So, with this then, we proceed to the sixth negative description of love. The sixth negative description of love is concerned with not being quick to respond negatively to provocation, as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, where it says, it reads in the NIV 1984 edition, of course, it is, it is not easily angered. It is not easily angered. Now, the word easily of the NIV is not in the Greek, since a literal translation of the Greek simply, this is the way the Greek says, not is irritable. That's the way the Greek says, not is irritable. Now, the expression easily angered of the NIV is, is really translated from a Greek 
word that appears only twice in the Greek New Testament. Now, each other occurrence is used to describe the distress or the agitation Apostle Paul fell because of idolatry that he observed in Athens. So, the word has a meaning to be distressed or to be irritated as it is used in Acts chapter 17 verse 16. Acts chapter 17 verse 16. It is Acts chapter 17 verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. That word distress is the same Greek word translate that we gave the meaning irritated uh, literally. Now the actually the uh, Greek word verb is related to a Greek noun that may mean encouragement. That is a cause, uh, causing of something by spurring on or stirring up as the word is used in the book of Hebrews to encourage believers to steer others towards good and love, as we read in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. It is, and let us consider how we may spur one another onward toward love and good deeds. So here is the idea of encouragement, uh, because that verbal phrase, spur one another on toward love, is more literally from the Greek, for encouragement in love. That's the literal Greek. For encouragement in love. Now the Greek now, of course, may also refer to a state of irritation expressed in argument. That is, sharp disagreement. As it is used to describe the sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas regarding Take a mark with them in the second missionary journey since he abandoned them the first one. And that uh, Greek word is used to describe that sharp disagreement in Acts chapter 15, verse 39. Acts chapter 15, verse 39. It is, they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. Thus then the 
word when used negatively implies irritation. So in our passage of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5, it has a sense of to, to be provoked or to be irritated. That is, to be stirred up or aroused to anger. Now that the Greek verb the apostle used has a sense of being aroused to anger or provoked to anger, presents a problem regarding what it is that the apostle meant to convey about love. So on a surface reading of the sentence where it says uh, in 1 Corinthians 15:5, it is not easily angered. Now literally again the Greek says not is irritable. If you just go by the literal translation, it will appear that love is never angry. But that could not possibly be what the Holy Spirit meant through the Apostle. In other words, we we were saying this because being angry in and of itself is not a sin. So that's one thing we have to remember now when we're talking about love. It doesn't mean we cannot display anger. A person can be angry and still be filled of the Spirit. Now, on the surface, it looks like they, they don't uh, agree. But really, you can be filled of the Spirit and exhibit great anger. That's, that's the fact. Now, of course, some of you may be shocked that I say something like that, and, and I say, well, you may be contradicting yourself. Well, no. You can be angry and be filled of the Spirit. Now, so, let me, if you are still thinking that way that I'm wrong, so let me put you at ease from the scripture pattern. Now, King Saul, on hearing a report, about the besiege of Jebesh Gilead by the Ammonites was said to be angry while he was filled of the Spirit. Although the filling of the Spirit was described primarily in terms of uh, God's power coming on him as we read in for Samuel chapter 11 verse 6. For Samuel, chapter 11, verse 6. For Samuel, chapter 11, verse 6. It reads, When Saul had their words, the Spirit of God came upon him in power. Now you cannot have the power of the Holy Spirit, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, if it doesn't fill you. That cannot happen. So he said, the Spirit of God came upon him in power. Look at what happened next. And we can really say so that he born with anger. So you see, there you have it. You can be angry and be filled of the Spirit. Now, still not convinced? Well, let me give you what I call the uh, 
standard that no one can dispute. And which is this. The Lord Jesus Christ, while on this planet, as a God-man, was continuously filled of the Spirit. In other words, there was never a nanosecond that Christ was on this planet that he wasn't controlled by the Holy Spirit. Impossible. None. So, he was angry on several occasions while on this planet. As for example, on the occasion when he healed a man that the religious group watched to see if he will heal on a Sabbath. As reported in Mark chapter 3 verse 5. See, this religious group, they were following him around to see what he would do on a Sabbath. Whether he's going to heal. Because they say you don't do any work on Sabbath and therefore you don't even heal on Sabbath. Because to them, healing is is work. So, there was a man there in the synagogue. And Christ knew what they were, all these groups were thinking. And he was angry about what they were thinking. So this is the background for what we read. He said, he looks around at them in anger. In anger. And deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Say to the, to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. So Jesus was angry. I just picked one example to show you. So do you see me the proof? That you can be filled of the Spirit and be angry. Now if it is, remember one thing. Jesus never sinned. Yet he was angry. He was completely filled of the Spirit. I mean the scripture is very clear that Jesus never sinned. According to Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 reads, So, I mean, reads, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. Look at the next clause here. Yet was without sin. So that's there you have it. Christ was never I mean he was as God man on this planet, never sinned. That means he was all the time controlled by the Holy Spirit implying that when he was angry, he was still under the control of the Holy Spirit. Now the fact though is that anger is not in and of itself a sin. As implied with instruction not to sin then when one is angry. As we read in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 26. 
Ephesians chapter 4 verse 26. So I'm, all, I'm going, all I'm arguing is if sin and, and anger can be equated, then we won't have what we're about to read. It is, it is in your anger. Do not sin. So you see, the issue is not whether you are angry. Like I said, if you're never angry, something is wrong with you. <laughs> I'm really honest with you. If you're never angry, something is wrong with you. I know there are people who pretend they're never angry. Something's wrong with them. Because you, you, can't, you have to be angry. Yeah, I mean, you can't see some things going on on this planet and not be angry. But the issue here is, it says, in your anger, do not sin. That's the issue. He said, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Okay. Hence, really, the literal translation of the negative characteristic in describing love that reads, not is irritable, should be carefully then interpreted to ensure that it does not imply that a person with love cannot exhibit anger. It is probably for this reason that then that the translators of the NIV added the word easily. See, that's they're trying to make you get some sense out of it. You say that it's not easily. So you say it is not easily angered. It's not that you're not angered. It's just they put the word easily to try to you know, soften it. Maybe the truth of matter is you're not to be irritated. Or you know to, if you have love, you cannot be so irritated at somebody where he goes from that anger to sin. That's the issue. Now it's also probably that the apostle really meant to convey that love is not carried away in anger. In effect, if a person with love is provoked or irritated such a person may become angry but the individual never crosses the line of being angry because of something sinful to actually committing a sin because one is angry in other words you can be angry but there's a thin line that if once you cross you sin that if you have love, you you be in, you be confined where you're angry enough that you never see, you never do anything wrong. It doesn't change the fact that you're angry; it's just that you don't see. So we are saying then that the sixth negative characteristic of love is that a person with it does not react to provocation or irritation in such a way as to sin. It doesn't mean you can't be irritated at somebody um, that uh, somebody provokes you that you may not respond. But it is how you respond and what you respond that is the issue. If you have love, well, you get irritated by somebody, 
But that doesn't cause you to do anything sinful. That's how we know what is love we're talking about. So unless the person you claim to love irritates you. That's when we know. When, it, when that person irritates you or provokes you, let's say how you act. That's what the time means. The love that we're dealing with. If you don't sin, then you have the love that the Holy Spirit demands of us. So really, it boils down to this. That love leads to a measured reaction to any provocation by the object of love. You have a measured reaction when that person irritates you or provokes you if you're exhibiting love to that individual. So that brings us into the seventh negative characteristic of love. The seventh characteristic or seventh description of love is concerned with unforgiveness. Unforgiveness. It is this description that is given in the last sentence of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, where we are studying. It reads, it keeps no record of wrongs in the NIV of 1984 edition. Now, it does not seem that this sentence that I just read is concerned with unforgiveness because it says, keeps no record of wrong. So you say, I haven't seen unforgiveness here. But it is. That's what we're going to say. But before we get to the Greek words used in this sentence, though, that's what will help us, we should remember what forgiveness is. So we can understand what unforgiveness means. Now the concept of forgiveness is simple, yet difficult to fully comprehend in practice or in real application. Now part of the difficulty in the practice of forgiveness is that popular saying of forgive and forget. Or it's equivalent that says something like not being able to think about it anymore. That's equivalent all of that. Now many people recognize the difficulty in forgetting something done to them. So it confuses their understanding of what it means to forgive. For example, someone will say that, well, I have forgiven this person, but I cannot forget what this person did to me. Maybe I have not forgiven the person at all. Or after all, if I can, if I can forget it. I know I've forgiven this person, but you know, I can't forget what the person did to me. So, based on that, forgive and forget. That means, maybe I haven't. <laughs> and I'm saying, that's not correct, we'll see. So the problem of this thinking though, is with the old saying again, forgiven and forgotten. <laughs> that's the way they say, forgiven and forgotten. It sounds good, doesn't it? Now, that's one of the things that I, I battle with uh, many times, and you know, people don't realize, and I hope this congregation that you get into that point, where when you hear things, you think, what does this person really mean by this? You know, that's just something that you hear once. Think about it. 
What is this person actually saying? The reason many people in this country are very gullible to whatever they hear, news or otherwise, is because they don't think. People, you know, they throw on these slogans, one word, word, and, the, and people run with it. But they're not thinking. What does that really mean? Now, one of the examples, I've tried to use this word, I've heard many people use it, and I ask them, what does that mean? No one has ever given me a definition. And I looked into Google, Google Dictionary, I can't get a clear definition. They just keep all over the place. Yet, it's a, you know, a word most people throw around today. My point, though, is that words are important. So, that they sound good doesn't mean that's what you need to do. So when the people hear that, forgive and forget, it sounds good. But does it really, what does it really mean? So that's where the problem comes. Anyway, the concept of forget about wrongdoing is really not a part of the vocabulary of the word forgiveness. But something, someone came up with in an attempt to help People deal with the concept of forgiveness. In fact, it is probably this what I suspect. I'm thinking, meditating about how this came about because I've searched, maybe it's there, but I couldn't find it. The source, who the first person that actually uttered that. I've not been able to find it, but I'm sure it is there. I just haven't looked hard enough. But my thing is, I suspect that this probably came. Because of what he said of God. About forgiveness that gave rise to that saying. Now you take for example, Isaiah 43 verse 25. Isaiah chapter 43 verse 25. It is, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Remembers your sins no more. Now that word remember is translated from a Hebrew word. Zakar, Zakar, that means to recall information or events with a focus on responding in an appropriate manner. In other words, it's not that you just recall something that you react. You want to respond according to some manner. So, if God recalls sin, then he will have to punish one that is guilty. So when God says that he will not remember our sins, that is a far cry from forgetting our sins. Not the same. Now you see the prophet, Isaiah, did not use a Hebrew word, saka. Saka. That actually means to forget. Or even, it may mean to ignore, to overlook, to be unmindful. That is, not remember information, and so lose sight 
of its significance, implying no response or proper response or an improper response in some context. Now certainly, God cannot ignore sin. And so it makes sense that this uh, second Hebrew word, Saka, that is not really used in Isaiah 43, uh, verse 25. Furthermore, God cannot forget that he only chooses not to recall our sins because of the uh, payment for them by Jesus Christ on the cross. That's he, you know, doesn't want to recall it because he's been paid for. So anyway, the verbal phrase in Isaiah 43:25, "Remembers your sin no more," is parallel to the clause who blots out your transgressions. And so, the verbal phrase "Remember your sins no more" means that God will not hold His covenant people. Uh, accountable for their sins. Hence, for us, as members of the new covenant, God assures us that this will be the case since Jesus Christ has already paid for our sins. He has already paid, so he won't recall it. Because if he recalls it, he has to punish us. Forgiveness involves then the concept of guilt. Guilt is, as a concept in the Bible though, is that state of moral agent after an intentional or unintentional violations of God's law or principle. Now, as soon as you violate God's principle, you enter into a state. That state is called guilt. Now, in effect, when you are guilty, there is consequence attached to it. So, you see, guilt carries with it some deserve punishment or payment. That's what guilt involves. If you can't be found guilty without some punishment, attached to it, or some kind of consequence. So, the issue is that we should understand there's a difference between guilt and guilt feelings. They're two different things. As soon as we sin, we're guilty. We may not have guilt feelings. It doesn't change the fact that we're guilty. Now, so the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology defines Guilt feeling as guilt feeling. This is, and I quote from them. They say, a painful conglomerate of emotions that usually includes anxiety in anticipation of punishment, shame with a sense of humiliation, dirtiness. And they need to hide. And grief or depression for the diminished sense of what? Dignity and self-esteem. End of quote. So, 
when people have guilt feeling, they want to hide. I mean, you know, those, those things are kind of, these days, we don't have much of that either. Because people just do anything they want. They, they just stare at you. You should be ashamed of me. I say it, but I'm staring at you. I'm not the one that should be ashamed. It's you who are looking at me who sin, right? That's what we see today. Because there's no sense of this guilt feeling. If you have a guilt feeling, you want to hide. That's what the, this uh, dictionary is defi- explaining, though. Anyway, guilt is then a state that exists once one does something wrong, whether accompanied with guilt feeling or not. Whether you have a guilt feeling or not, it doesn't matter. As soon as you do something wrong, you are guilty. So the point to emphasize is that once guilt exists, then punishment is inseparably united with it. In effect, you cannot have guilt without punishment. You are found guilty? Well, a judge cannot say, okay, now you go home. There has to be a consequence. Otherwise, finding you guilty means nothing. Because most people uh, don't don't think in those terms. Once you are found guilty of something, consequence must follow. Anyway, consequently then, to forgive means to remove the guilt, the guilt resulting from the wrongdoing. Removing that guilt. Not only remove the guilt, that means the punishment. Or to set a person free from all obligations of the negative consequences of the individual's actions. Whatever the negative consequences of the actions are. As soon as you say, I forgive you, you set the person free from all of it. That's what forgiveness means. So, if we may put it in another way, when you forgive someone, it means that you do not hold that person responsible for what the individual had done to you, nor do you tally the number of times the individual has wronged you. That's forgiveness. Now instead, what we're looking at is, you again, you do not treat the individual according to the penalty that the person's wrongdoing demands. Instead, you let go the penalty that the person's offense demands from you. So when somebody wrongs you, you want to exert some kind of consequence, whatever it is. Now it's not like this, this awful nonsense people hear sometimes. You don't you don't pay sin with sin. You just don't do that. So he cheated on me. I'm going to cheat on him. You can't, that's just nonsense. It doesn't make sense. There is a negative consequence. But it's not one sin to another sin. Now, so, what that means is, whatever that consequence is, you let it go. That's what we're dealing with when we talk about forgiveness. So, Forgiveness then does not really mean that you will ever erase or 
blot out from your memory the offense. But whenever the offense gets in your mind, which it will, you push it aside and treat the person without regard to that past offense and without keeping scores of how many times the individual has wronged you. That's why when the Lord was trying to answer that question, he said, how many times will I forgive you? He said, seven times seven. Not 490 times, right? <laughs> but his point was what I'm just explaining to you. Right? So, this is what forgiveness is all about then. This is what God does when he forgives us on the basis of Christ's death on the cross. We are no longer held liable to the punishment of sin, which of course is eternal separation from God. So when we say we have been forgiven as believers in Christ, that's all it means now. We are no longer going to spend eternity in the lake of fire. That's God. If God does that, he didn't forgive us. So that is, that forgiveness means that penalty, the punishment is not let go. And that's exactly what we have here. Those, we are no longer, again, held liable by God to the punishment, which would then result in eternal separation from him. Those in, unforgiveness is the opposite of everything that we have said about forgiveness. And that unforgiveness implies not setting free the one guilty and also keeping scores of how many times the person has wronged another. So with this explanation, it will be easier then to understand our reason for stating that it lasts Sentence of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5 when he says, He keeps no record of wrongs. He keeps no record of wrongs. It's now concerned with unforgiveness. As we examine then the Greek words used in our passage. See, what I've done is to explain, we now know, in case you've forgotten, I'm sure most of you knew that before now, but you just forgot, now I reminded you. Like when you forgave, all it means is you just let go. Whatever negative consequence that you will have administered to a person for wronging you, you let that go. Will you ever think about it? Yes, you will. Often too. But it takes because anytime that comes in your mind, how you react towards that person. That's what we're dealing with here. Anyway, the uh, passage where studies say it keeps no record of wrongs. Now that expression, keep record, is translated from a Greek word that may mean to determine by a mathematical process. And so it may mean then to count or to take into account as the word is used to describe a blessed individual as one that God does not hold the individual's sin against the person, as per the quotation from the Old Testament uh, scripture by Apostle Paul 
that is recorded for us in Romans chapter 4, verse 8. Romans chapter 4, verse 8. Romans chapter 4, verse 8 reads, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord would never count against him. See how blessed we are? Once we come to Christ, he will never do that. It doesn't matter what the sin is. He never counted against us to send us to hell. That's my point. Will he still count my sin after seven years? Yes, he will to an extent. What extent? To whack me. To get my attention. To inflict some pain for me on this planet. Because he doesn't tolerate sin. But in terms of going to hell, that's done with. Any suffering I'm going to suffer is on this body. For sinning. But the issue for us in terms of when it comes to the forgiveness of God, the major issue is no more going to hell. Judgment on this planet will continue. Anyway. Anyway, so under this concept though of determining by mathematical process is the meaning of them to evaluate or to estimate or to consider as a result of a calculation. So it is uh, in the sense of to consider that Apostle Paul used it also in his quotation from Old Testament in support of his teaching that the love of God for us cannot change according to Romans chapter 8 verse 36. Romans chapter 8 verse 36. It is, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Considered is a word here. Now the word also may mean to hold a view about something. To hold a view about something. That is to think, to believe, or to be of the opinion. As the Apostle Paul used it to describe himself to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 5. Second Corinthians, chapter 11, verse 5. It is, But I do not think I am in the least inferior to these super apostles. Here the word think. Now the Greek word may mean to give careful thought to a matter. So it may mean to consider or to ponder or let one's mind dwell on something. As it is, that's the way the apostle use it, to caution those who are superficial in spiritual matters. To recognize that he and his apostolic team belong to Christ as we read in Second Corinthians Chapter 10, verse 7. 
by looking at time. It's time for break. After break, we'll read it. <laughs> 